I'll say this. If you're planning on being a martial arts owner, gym owner, or a coach even, if you don't enjoy the success of other people, don't do it. Just don't do it. You won't be doing anyone a favor. You're going to become exposed eventually. If you're putting out a good product and you deserve it, you will be successful. Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with the one and only Matt Kwan, a powerhouse in the BJJ community. Matt is the man behind On Guard Academy of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in Canada. Matt holds a black belt under Rob Bernacki from Highland Top Team. Matt's journey into the world of Jiu-Jitsu ignited at the age of 20. He's been an avid competitor, showcasing his prowess in many tournaments. Matt's been knee-deep in BJJ since 2009. He's not just an amazing practitioner. He's also a devoted coach, leading the charge as the head coach of the Simon Fraser University grappling team. But that's not where his contributions end. He teamed up with his brother, Steve Kwan, to create the enlightening BJJ Mental Models podcast. And as if that weren't enough, Matt takes center stage as the host of his very own The Essential Jiu-Jitsu podcast, sharing his insights and connecting with the jiu-jitsu community. Matt's also the author, pouring his heart into Zara Can Do Jiu-Jitsu, a heartwarming children's book aimed at nurturing determination and confidence in the little ones aged 5 to 7. This episode takes an exhilarating twist. Matt peels back the layers and shares some incredible personal stories, many of which have never seen the light of day. Brace yourself, folks. This is raw, unfiltered honesty at its best. And fair warning, if you're someone who's easily rattled, this might not be your cup of tea. But personally, I was all in, and I hope you'll be too. Matt's magnetic personality and exceptional wit shine through as we cover a whole spectrum of topics, from his reflections on coaching and being an academy owner to the mind of a fierce competitor and an unyielding free thinker. We left no stone unturned. Matt's journey, his insights, and the way he wears his heart on his sleeve, it's a roller coaster of emotions and revelations that'll leave you enlightened, moved, and perhaps even inspired to tackle your own challenges head on. So prepare to be enthralled as Matt and I navigate the intricate tapestry of BJJ life and everything in between. Trust me, you won't want to miss a single moment of this incredible conversation. And with that, I give you Matt Kwan. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. Man, it's been years I've been stalking you for quite some time, and I am stoked to have you on the show, finally. I had your brother, Steve, here uh, on, I believe it was episode two. So thanks so much for making the time. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Adolfo. Give some background for the people who may not be familiar with you. You are a black belt under the legendary Rob Bernacki of Island Top Team, correct? That is correct. Black belt under Rob Bernacki, unfortunately. And uh, <laughs> yeah, still under Rob. It's been a great journey. I got my black belt in 2018. So your journey was really interesting in that you've had one of those, like you did some belting at another academy for quite some time. And then you somehow came to some sort of epiphany, like I believe it was a seminar or something you mentioned before. And you're like, maybe I should go in this direction. And there was almost like a, a demotion type of self demotion type of thing. Can you, can you touch on that and like uh, your mindset during that process? It actually started, my brother actually started jiu-jitsu slightly ahead of me, and he was training at Gracie Baja, Vancouver at the time. And this was, there was a mass exodus there. There was a, an alleged uh, sexual assault. The person, he'll go unnamed, let's call him R. Silva. Actually, that's too obvious. Let's call him Rodrigo S., 
Anyways, so there was an alleged incident that happened and there was a mass exodus. So my, I actually went to Gracie Bar for my first class in Vancouver and I live in Poco and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I want to try this out, but I wasn't looking to be serious about it at all. I was just like, I was thinking maybe I would train once or twice a week and that would be it. And I asked them, I said, Hey, would it be cool if, if I join here, I'm looking to for training once or twice a week. And the answer I got was no, we need more commitment than that. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> it was so weird. That is the so weirdest that, thing. Okay. So weird, man. So then I went, I joined a gym called West Coast BJJ, which at the time was honestly like, if you can remember, this must have been 14, 15 years ago when I started. There's a guy that ran the gym named Don Whitefield. And this guy was kind of like a pioneer in this area. He trained with Delaheva a lot. He was playing these open guards and he he was quickly building a team of like killers. Like I'm talking high level guys. A lot of them went on to have pretty successful MMA careers, open up their own gyms, things like that. Just like a lot of talent. But then all of a sudden, after about a year, a year and a half of training there, I got my blue belt and I re I realized that everyone was leaving and Don had taken a shift in a direction. He was, he started going to a bunch of Lloyd Irving seminars and Lloyd Irving is very much about, you know, making money and how you can maximize your profits. And hey, I'm all for that. I'm a gym owner too, but I don't believe that it should come at the cost of authenticity or the jujitsu itself. And so everyone started leaving and I was like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, now I'm like the only high, I don't even call myself high level at the time, but like I was at that point, I had gotten my purple belt and I was starting to teach classes there. And I was like, man, there's no one else here. Like what the hell? Everyone has left. Everyone has moved away, started their own gyms or pursued MMA or whatever. And uh, at the time, I remember Don had a falling out with one of his students and I went and cross trained at his gym and Don didn't like that. He said, you can't teach here anymore. And I just said, dude, I'm out of here. Like you just gave me a reason to go. And so I joined a team called Burnaby BJJ, still friends with those guys. I like them a lot. But the truth was that they weren't really passionate about jujitsu. And I was kind of I had an opportunity, honestly, to kind of take the reins of the club, not to run it or to appreciate the benefits of running a club financially, but I could have, I was, I was teaching a lot of classes and I was kind of like the really passionate one about the gym, uh, at the gym. And I was at a fork in the road. And the reason that that fork in the road happened was because IBJJF, you have to have your papers signed to compete as a brown belt and eventually a black belt. And it came down to me getting my papers signed under the head professor there or which not not necessarily the head professor there, their head professor. I would have had to have gone up the chain and asked people that I didn't know to get my papers signed. So long story short, I had met Rob at a seminar that he came out to Burnaby BJJ. And I realized I'm like, man, this guy at first, he he just threw me off as like this huge nerd which he is, he still is. And he was using all these terms, these scientific, scientific jargon, you know, levers, frames and wedges and things like that. And I was kind of like, oh, uh, like, I don't know if this is really how I want to learn jujitsu. But then after the seminar, I remember rolling and training a couple of months after and being like, hey, I'm starting to see this whole lever thing. I'm understanding like, oh, he's onto something with framing and uh, scientific concepts, alignment, etc. And I was like, man, this guy is actually the real deal. And after that, we kind of built a friendship and reached out to him. We, we keep training over the years. And then it came time for me to get my brown belt. I had to go compete at IBJ 
DJ Jeff and I just said, you know what, like it's only fair at this point that I go and train with Rob because he's really taught me a lot about jujitsu. He's given me a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom that really allowed me to use my work ethic in combination with my work ethic allow me to make a career out of jujitsu. And I just, I, it wouldn't be right if I, I felt if I was under someone else. So I've jumped gyms a couple of times, which is not comfortable. I'm sure some listeners out there are listening, have switched gyms. I know people who switch gyms. It's never a comfortable thing, but you kind of have to ask yourself, is this the best thing for me? Because when I was teaching at West coast before I got let go because I cross trained at a friend's gym, I was making like 80 bucks a class, which is good money as a purple belt 10 years ago. And it was close to my house. It was super convenient. And I was like, man, like, but there wasn't good training there. Like the training had fallen off because everyone left. And I had to really ask myself, is this the best place for me to train? And I think a lot of people in jujitsu go through this at one point in their journey. And uh, it was the best thing I ever did to give up the comfort and the money and go train at a higher level place and eventually, you know, meet my professor. Wow, that's wild. So you went through three academies. So you did you wind up at Island Top Team then? Never. No, I've, I mean, I visited there, but I live on the mainland. And yeah, we should probably preface this that Matt's in Canada, right? So yeah, yes, please describe the geography. <laughs> yes, I'm in communist Canada over here. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we're just like, I'm in Vancouver, basically, or in a suburb outside of Vancouver. And my professor Rob is on an island actually called Vancouver Island, which is, you know, it's like an hour and a half ferry ride away and uh, in a town called Nanaimo. And I've never actually trained there consistently, if that makes sense. Like I've never gone to his gym and like, okay, I'm going to spend years over here and weeks over here. I go over there a couple times, maybe a year, not at all during COVID because no one was training at that time. And Rob was very strict about COVID. It's basically been like kind of like a long distance relationship. And he's come to the mainland to train with me. He's gone to Burnaby BJJ and kept relationships open there. And then I uh, meet up with him there and we train and we've gone on trips together, you know, down to Vegas and to California a couple times. And I hear a lot of most similar stories like this um, throughout uh, some people that I've talked to from Canada or even like the deep South here in the, the States in that there was sporadic gyms, if no gyms around them available at some point. But it sounds like you actually had some options or a couple options sort of around you, which um, I know some other Canadians didn't. Yeah, when I first started, I mean, 15 years ago, there was very little jujitsu around. It was known through MMA, but there wasn't really high level guys here. There was, you know, if you were a purple belt, you were like a fucking gangster. There was like, like it was rare to see purple belts, you know? And nowadays everyone and their mama are getting fucking black belts. And quite honestly, in my opinion, maybe I'm speaking out of line, but I think that the standards are pretty low to get black belts these days in, in this area. There's a lot of black belts I think don't have business being black belts, but there's a lot more of them. And I kind of look at my generation as the bridge between like the old generation and the new generation, the old generation being like guys like Don, you know, you're a black belt when you're like 30 or 40, you're a world champion when you're like 30 or uh, 35 or whatever. Nowadays, world champions and black belts are like 20, 
you know, 20, between 20 and 22, like crazy young. I got kids that start at five years old now. You know, this is like the new generation. When I started, there were no, there weren't really a lot of like five-year-old kids just get getting started in jujitsu. It was pretty scarce. That was kind of a big con- contributor to me making it a career path because I was like, well, I see an opportunity here where there's not a lot of gyms, but I also knew that jujitsu, you know, anyone who trains, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you train, that it's authentic and it's realistic. There was such a sense of longevity in jujitsu for me. Like I knew it wasn't just going to like fade away. So I'm like, this shit is too cool. You know, it's too effective. It's real. It's not a bunch of kata. It's not a bunch of bullshit. It's like we're in there wrestling and trying to choke each other out. Like this would work in a real fight. And I felt that this, you know, there's going to be opportunities in the future if I just stick with this right now. And uh, man, it what a decision because I was a chef before and I'm so glad I'm not doing that anymore because my life would be way harder in many different ways. So making that jump to what I do now, running a school and living the jujitsu life is like, I just basically live on vacation. It's crazy. And also what's really interesting about your jujitsu journey is that you taught so early and you have a really effective way of disseminating, I would say, really dense information. I don't know how many Danaher instructionals you've sold because you are a whore for Danaher. I will say that. And you probably have your own code and I'm sure you're making millions with him. But um, I wish it's uh, you're really adept at disseminating that type. I can't sit through 45 minutes of, of just gripping. You know what I mean? It's it's tough for me. But when I yeah. hear you sort of speak about it, I'm like, okay, can you talk about like your, your growth and teaching? How did that start? How did it evolve to where you're at now? Originally, I actually really wanted to be a culinary instructor. Like I, right out of high school, I knew what I wanted to do. I was like, okay, I love cooking. I love eating. I'm handy in the kitchen. This is something, again, I kind of looked around just like in jujitsu. I looked around at my peers and I was like, you guys kind of fucking suck, honestly. And I feel there's a lot of opportunity, right? And I didn't know shit about the industry. You know, later I would learn that the industry in cooking is so unforgiving. It's just the work to reward ratio is incredibly unfair. And, you know, there's a lot of other people that work in that industry that get a lot more benefits than the cooks. And in the end, after I completed my apprenticeship, basically as my apprenticeship was coming to an end, I knew that I wanted to stop doing it. I, at that point I was purple belt. I was already teaching, you know, I started teaching when I got my purple belt and I was like getting obsessed with jujitsu. All I could think about was like, why am I coming here and cooking eight hours a day downtown? I got to commute an hour fucking each way waste my life work super late right your hours were probably insane no i wasn't working super late that that actually prevented me from moving up i didn't want to move up and work late hours because i wanted my evenings to do jujitsu i would take the 6 a.m train or whatever start work at 7 get off at 3 30 take the train back try and catch some sleep i'd be home for like a half an hour well i'd be home for a couple hours then i would go train but when i opened my own school there was a couple of years there where i literally came home i had about half hour to sit and then I would have to go teach classes. So I was working two jobs for like two or three years before I could really quit cooking. Dude, it was it was fucked. It was hard on my health. Anyone who's worked two jobs understands how hard that is. And I just knew that if I kept sticking with it, that there would be a reward at the end, you know, and there was, there's a huge reward. And now, like I said, I can be as busy or as not busy as I want to be. I'm very busy these days because I choose to be. So anyways, I knew that I, when I first started cooking, I was like, man, like I really like this. I, I have a way to, I have an ability to watch things 
and I can mimic things. So I can, I can watch someone work. I can watch the product they make and I can mimic it and I can come up with an, my own product that is very, very similar to their product at a high level by just watching. And this is something that I use in jujitsu all the time. And so I realized pretty early in my culinary career, especially after going to VCC, which is a culinary arts institute in Vancouver, I realized I'm like, man, like these guys have the sickest job. They're just cooking and they're culinary instructors. They get to work with fun food all day. It's great. And I was really passionate around the time I was in culinary arts school. That was like a really fun part of my journey. And then I, I of course, finished it finished my apprenticeship, started working in hotels. And then after like five years, I was like, eh, this kind of sucks. You know, I don't really want to move up anymore because if I move up in the pecking order of the kitchen, I'm going to lose jujitsu. And I, I was at a real fork in the road. I was like, I said, okay, 10 years from now, where do you want to be? 20 years from now, where do you want to be? You know, you're going to be a chef who's working 10 to 14 hour days. You're going to be probably out of shape. You're going to have a bunch of regret because you're going to wish that you did jujitsu the whole time. You're going to be looking out the window, wishing you did jujitsu. And I just said, okay, how do I start training my mind on doing jujitsu? Like I said, when I was like a purple belt, I was getting really into teaching jujitsu. I really enjoyed it. So again, the things that I'm super obsessed with, like I'm obsessed with them. I wake up and I'm like, okay, I, I got shit. I got to accomplish. I got to focus on this. I got to study. If I'm not doing something, I feel like I'm wasting time. Jiu-Jitsu was like a huge part of that for me. It was a big awakening where I was like, okay, how can I be a really good teacher? How can I apply the teaching passion that I had for cooking into jujitsu? And it's always been things that I've been like passionate about. And it's always been skills that I work with my hands, which is super weird, like cooking, jujitsu. I started drums and guitar and things like that. So I really like uh, skills with my hands. And an interesting thing too, like I consider myself like I'm pretty decent at jujitsu. I teach at jujitsu. I'm very, it's my life, right? But like I was even more talented in cooking. That was like, I honestly think I could have accomplished anything I wanted in the culinary arts industry. The reason I didn't is because I didn't like where the industry was going. And I really fell in love with jujitsu. And I was like, there's no way that I can't pursue that because I will hate my life in 10 years. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like I just have like a natural passion for teaching. I really enjoy coaching people in subjects that I enjoy. It's a, it's super awesome for me. Like my goal was never to be a world champion or whatever. That wasn't really a goal of mine. My goal really? was to make a, I thought it was. Yeah. No. Like I said, when I first started jujitsu, I wasn't even going to compete. I actually had a buddy back in the day and I was like, I did a couple competitions and I was like, ah, like, and I had won them and I was like, eh, it was fun. But like, I don't know if it's really where I want this to go. He's like, dude, you're talented. Like it, it's a waste of talent if you don't do it. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll keep doing it. <laughs> like I wasn't like, I love to compete because it makes, it's honestly very hard. It's very stressful. That's why I love it because I know it's good for me and it's good for my business. But like my goal is not to be a world champ. My goal was just to make a living off of jujitsu. And I've done that. So everything now that I accomplish is just like gravy, basically. And now I'm more passionate about my students being world champions. That's actually what I want, you know, and if I win some tournaments along the way, that's cool, too. So what do you think makes a great uh, instructor then? someone who is willing to put in the time with their students. It's like everyone says, in terms of being a competitor, 
and being an instructor, they're two completely different things. Just because you're a good competitor doesn't mean you're a good instructor and vice versa. A good instructor is someone who actually cares about their students and will go above and beyond and put themselves out there to make sure that their students have a chance at success. There's a lot of instructors out there who don't even care about their students. You know, like I said, my first instructor, Don, he has since just fucked off and moved to like the Caribbean. And I I know some of his students, I'm like, hey, you ever talk to Don anymore? And they're like, no, like he just left. He stopped talking to us, just left. And that gym has since reaffiliated. They're not with him anymore. And I'm just like, man, like what a shame that someone who was so influential in the Vancouver jiu-jitsu scene just decided to up and leave and a lot of people don't remember him fondly. And I'm like, I would hate for that to happen to me, but it won't happen to me because I actually like care about my students. I think the best instructors out there, obviously you have to have good knowledge, whatever your students goals are, whatever they may be, your instructor has to have some kind of an ability to take them there. But really what matters is that the instructor actually cares and gives a shit about their students and is willing to, you know, stay behind class and answer questions or come up with a game plan or analyze analyze that student's game and look at the weaknesses within that game and say, hey, just you. I'm just talking about you. You need to work on this, this, and this. I can help you. Let's make a game plan, blah, blah, blah. Let's reassess it in a couple months. You know, like that. that's the type of stuff that I think people remember and what goes a long way. There's the creating success and having the knowledge and all that, but really just someone who actually cares, like a mentor who's willing to kind of take you under their wing. I think that that is a really big attribute for a good instructor. That's interesting because I'm, I'm hearing the flip side too, in that it's sort of the same coin. The other side of the same coin is that uh, you care about legacy. It sounds like uh, what people are going to think of you, not only like that you cared for these students, but that you actually cared for your work and how you will be remembered. Absolutely. And maybe that's my ego saying, hey, I care about... Thing. Not necessarily, right? Like I'm actually, I'm actually researching my next episode on my show on ego. That's going to be the, the next topic. And it's fascinating, man. Like ego is such a, it's such a love hate thing. It makes you selfish and it makes you. It's a bit of a loaded term too, don't you think? Oh, totally. Like, you know, the whole cliche, leave your ego at the door. Right. Like. There's validity to that. And then it's also bullshit. You know, if you want to be a high level competitor, if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to do anything great, I think you need to have some kind of an ego because you need your passion needs to be backed by a belief that you can accomplish something extraordinary. If you don't have that ego pushing you, then it's difficult because you're, you're just like an ordinary person, right? But if you believe, hey, like I can make a career out of this. Hey, I can open that business or I, I feel like I can win that competition. Like that is your ego helping you in a positive way. But it's not good when you have an ego and you're like comparing yourself to other people and feeling shitty if you can't match up to them and things getting down on yourself. But man, when you harness your ego in an, in a healthy way, like it is super effective. Like me, I, I am worried about what people think of me, which a lot of people associate that with a negative connotation. But at the same time, it's like, I know that that will help me become better at my craft. It motivates me to be better. My goal is when I'm old and white haired or no haired or whatever, I already have white hair. Actually, I want the jujitsu community in Vancouver to be better than when I started. That's my goal. I want there to be world champions coming out of Vancouver. I want there to be kids coming out of Vancouver that I taught that win titles and go on to have successful careers in the industry and, and pass down the information that we give them, right? Like that's, again, 
that harkens back to me saying that's my generational gap between the older generation and the newer generation. That's my role. And I'd be doing jujitsu a disservice and doing the kids a disservice if I if I didn't care about how I was remembered, because I want them to have better jujitsu than me in a shorter amount of time. So my ego kind of it feeds my passion for sure. And you always got to check it. Your ego is always telling you, oh, you can be better. Oh, you're not as good as that guy. Right. And you just got to be like, hey, man, just shut up for a sec because I everyone's journey is different and I want the healthy ego not the not the asshole ego just a reminder please give us a five-star review on Apple Music and Spotify and become a VIP member for only 99 cents a month get ad-free episodes at anchor.fm forward slash forever white belt forward slash subscribe and check us out on Instagram at forever white belt show go buy your forever white belt swag at teespring t-e-e spring.com forward slash forever dash white dash belt Check us out on YouTube now at Forever White Belt. Finally, if you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Mention the podcast and get two weeks free. Your advice on uh, those that are thinking about, hey, I want an open academy. Someone who wants to open an academy, what are you selling? What is your product? For me, Locally, I'm seen at local tournaments and I win a fair amount of tournaments and I'm like known on the local scene. I haven't won hardly any big titles. I'm not a world champion. I'm not a European champion. I, this is embarrassing for me. I don't have one fucking IBJJF gold medal and it pisses me off. I got a couple silvers. I got a couple bronzes, no gold medals. Like I'm not anything special, but on the local level, I network with people. I know people I'm there. I contribute. I referee. I compete as much as I can. I win often. And when I lose, I barely lose unless I get caught with a buggy choke, which happened to me about a month ago. And it really hurts my feelings. So you got to ask yourself, okay, I want to open an academy. What am I selling? Am, am I a known competitor? Am I a known instructor? Am I out there? Or are you just going to open like a, I don't want to shit on it, open like a GB or like a, a franchise business, you know, and you're like, oh, I know a little bit of jujitsu, but I'm I'm nothing special, right? Like, what are you selling? Because that's really important. It will give you an idea as to what kind of clientele you're going to attract. I attract people who are wanting to learn good jujitsu, people who want to compete and win at the higher levels because I've competed at big tournaments and whatnot. And I'm, I'm very passionate about jujitsu, but there's other instructors who like my first instructor that I mentioned, like money is more of a priority. They prioritize more of a family environment where anyone can do jujitsu, right? So is that the kind of product you're going to sell? Or are you going to sell a product to competitors? I would say if you want to open a school, great. There's a lot of jujitsu out there and you got to ask yourself, what am I selling? And once you know what you're selling, it'll be a lot easier to know what direction you're going in because jiu-jitsu is marketed towards different demographics. For example, recreational people don't really like to train at my school necessarily. Okay, I'm not saying that. I'm not going to say that, actually. There are recreational people because I have. I would say I have a successful business and you do need recreational people to be successful. But I would say that there are certain people who don't like to go to a school and get their ass kicked. They don't like to go to school and have like really high level training partners. They want to go to a place that's relaxed. It's more laid back. It's more of a recreational place. And I get that. And that's not wrong. And I'm not judging them for that. I'm just saying, know who your clientele is, know what your strengths are and play to your strengths. 
That's what I would say. And in terms of marketing, basically avoid anything on paper. I would say everything's digital now. For me, I don't market. My marketing is me going to tournaments, competing, refereeing, trying to talk to people, my podcast now, uh, of course, all the content I make and just my competitive record competing a lot. Some people don't have that. So they have to use a ton of marketing tactics. Like I said, know what your strengths are and then play to that. I don't need to chase people. They just come to me because of my, I guess, my reputation or whatever. I will say this too. Google reviews, fucking huge. That is really important. If you're highly ranked in Google, think about it. Someone's, oh, I want to try jujitsu. What am I going to do? First thing they're going to do, they're going to go Google and they're going to type jujitsu near me. Okay. And generally the highest reviews will get a really good number of leads. Okay. Obviously there's going to be normies who, who look up, you know, anything with Gracie in it and they'll just go to Gracie. Okay. Which is fair, but the Google reviews are huge. Sometimes I try, I read my Google reviews and I like, I start to tear up because it's like people are telling me how amazing it is to train with me and all this stuff. Like just go to on guard BJJ and look at the Google reviews. Like I'm so lucky the people that I have in my life leaving reviews. And that is a huge asset for any person who's trying to open a business is start building a healthy amount of, of positive reviews by being a good coach and a good person and the business will come. So you didn't touch on the, and I want to get your feedback on your thoughts of a blue belt starting a school, a purple belt starting a school, your thoughts on that. Should they, shouldn't? Maybe it depends where it is. You know, if you're a blue belt and you're in the Cook Islands or the, let's say you're the, you're in the Northwest territories, that's a place in Canada and butt fuck nowhere. Let's say you're up there and you're a blue belt. Open a gym. I think it's a great thing. The more jujitsu, the better. I'm not going to be that kind of guy that's like, oh, you're not qualified to do it. But that being said, if you're in the heart of Vancouver or let's say you're my competitor and you're a blue belt, I'll be like, good luck. You know, like at least I would say a, a brown belt is best. When I opened On Guard, I was a purple belt and I got my brown belt the day I opened the gym. That was in 2015. So I think now it's going to be harder for a purple belt to open a gym. But when I was a purple belt, there was far less black belts and it wasn't uncommon to have a brown belt or a purple belt open a school. There just wasn't as many schools. Now there's tons of different schools, right? There's tons of black belts. So I think ch things change, but I'm not going to say, oh no, you should never open a blue uh, school if you're a blue belt. What if you live in an area where there's no jujitsu? I think you're doing jujitsu a favor, you know, assuming that you study and that you are doing your best open a school. Hopefully some people will join near you and you can influence the area. Let's talk podcasts. Um, I should have mentioned that Matt is one of the co-founders of uh, BJJ Mental Models with his brother, Steve. And now you have the Essential Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. I, I found it fascinating being a fan of you guys like so early on in the beginning. You know, you were such an integral part of the show and then suddenly you're sort of fading away and then you're just kind of gone. And then I'm hearing, you know, he's got a school he's got to run. He's got a family and competing responsibilities. And then years go by and then suddenly you're back with this new podcast. Can you walk us through the BJJ Mental Models arc when you guys starting it being a huge success and then you kind of fade away? And what was that dark period? Where'd you go? And what made you come back? And why not just jump back into mental models versus what you're doing now? 
Well, I, I've actually never really spoken about this publicly, but basically, you know, one day my bro came to me and he was like, hey, and this is pre-COVID, right? He's like, hey, we should uh, do a podcast or whatever. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I love talking about jujitsu. I actually love public speaking, right? I love, I could talk about jujitsu. As you can see, I can go for an hour straight without edits, just talk about jujitsu. It's, it, it's awesome. Let's just say that there were, so, so I, like a lot of the writing that you see on the BJJ mental models database, a lot of the concepts and whatever are me. And I contributed a lot to that show. Steve was really good at, he's a software engineer. The guy is amazing with computers. He can get, he, he has taken that podcast to really impressive levels, you know, getting interviewed by like jujitsu mag and all types of things like, or Gracie mag or whatever. Um, Steve's well known in the community. You know what I mean? He's, he's done a lot to push that podcast and I respect him a lot, but there was a time when, when it was just the two of us in my parents' closet trying to fuck around with a microphone, you know, huddling around this microphone like this so that we could both be heard. Right. And, um, it was a passion project for me. Once it got off the ground, he took it in directions where I wasn't really, it didn't, it, it wasn't directions that I wanted to take the show, but I was in a situation where I didn't have any control because he was doing all the marketing. He's doing all the editing, all the recording. He's doing all the work. Let's be fucking honest. He deserved the success that he had with that show and that he does enjoy today with that show. Did I help him get it off the ground with like my jujitsu knowledge? Yes. But there came a time where it was moving in a direction and I didn't have any control. You know, he was interviewing me. I think, it, I think I got like a good hundred episodes in with him. You know, it was fun. And then, you know, we had some disagreements around the COVID time. And that's where I think a lot of people had disagreements. There's people in my life that won't talk to me anymore because of COVID, because of, I was very outspoken about it very much. You know, anyone who followed my Instagram around that time was like, holy shit, dude, you're loud. Right. And again, that maybe that's me and my ego. But there were things that I was saying that politically I didn't line up with uh, my brother and the show was getting pushed in a direction where it was primarily becoming an interview show. I wanted a show where we kind of discuss uh, topics, me and him. It's a very heavily edited show. It's it's a real conversation. But like I said, if there's any breaks, trains, breaks in the train of thought, if there's an um, it gets edited out, things like that. And for me, I wanted more of like a raw conversation. I also wanted to go into topics that could be uncomfortable because I think people want to hear shit like that. But there were times when I would be talking about it and he's like, we got to cut this out. Like, we can't talk about this. And I'm like, oh, that sucks. Like, and I just didn't have enough creative freedom, I think, to really keep want, make me want to stay there. OK, and and I always wanted a podcast of my own. Once that ended, there was a couple of years where, you know, of course, COVID happened. And there was a couple of years where I was focusing on my gym and whatnot. And, you know, I got two kids and things like that. And I just didn't have the time to start my own show. But it was always kind of a plan for me to to have a show one day. I just needed to get that initial startup, which I've now got behind me. So I've gotten into a rhythm now and I'm doing this show on my own. I can say what I want. It's a raw conversation. I don't cut shit out. 
if you ever see me edit the episode, it's because my kid woke up and now I have a kid who's like screaming and crying and I have to cut that part out or whatever. But other than that, it's just me talking in front of a camera and all the slip ups and things like that get left in. If I don't like the way it sounded, I just re-record the whole episode. And eventually my, my goal was to eventually have a show where people can call in. That's actually what I really wanted. I wanted to have like a radio show about jujitsu, right? And who knows? I know with uh, this program, Riverside, you can do live shows with call-ins. I just need to have enough traction. People want to call in and and do that. And I will do something like that one day. That's gutsy. That's gutsy, man. Why? If anyone can pull it off, it's you. Because I remember, it might have been during the lockdowns or something that... Yeah, wasn't that stupid? Don't you remember that? How fucking ridiculous was that? You guys had it. I mean, I'm in California, so both of us had it really bad. But but I remember getting jumping on a... I think it was a Facebook Live thing with you and, and Steve at the time. And you guys were fielding live. This is early on when you guys were sort of testing the, the live thing. And you guys were doing it via uh, Facebook. And it was mm-hmm. both you guys and this little shitty webcam and, and you're in this room and, and we're asking a bunch of stupid jujitsu questions and you guys are like showing positions and stuff trying to show positions yeah, it, it was I fantastic I fucking loved it you and, were there uh, I think there was like three people there yeah I, I was one of the three dude I, <laughs> oh, when I said sweet. I was a stalker I was like literally thanks, I am literally thanks for the help bro stalker, I appreciate man. it yeah early on but it, it was fascinating to see your growth now what you're doing and how it's evolved the technology and everything that you're doing and with your show I see that you're doing all kinds of stuff it's kind of wild because you covering like history of jiu-jitsu sort of stuff and then you're also like talking technique like and then you're talking about like uh, the business like kids programs and, and yep. things like that it's whatever i want to talk about it's fucking great and that's the thing with my show it's like sometimes i want to talk Kimuras. Sometimes I want to talk about my autoimmune journey, which has nothing to really do about jujitsu. If you want, if you think about it, sometimes I want to talk about how I help my kids get ready. Sometimes I want to talk about the history of jujitsu and do like a, a mini series on that, right? Like I can do whatever I want, which is in terms of BJJ mental models, you know, I like, I'm so proud of my bro for what he's done. And like, even though we disagree, we have a great relationship. He actually helps me a lot with my website and with the podcast and things like that. But the truth is, is that we are both individuals who need the control. I can't have someone else controlling a project that I'm dedicating time to. And I just know that about myself. That's like me getting someone else to run my school. I can't do that. I need the control. And again, maybe that's my ego or maybe that's me just being like obsessed with getting my ideas out and and running it the way that I want to do it. But that's the thing. When you're an entrepreneur, that's what you got to do, right? So I think it's just like the clash of two kind of, I don't want to use the word alphas, but like maybe two leaders or two uh, entrepreneurs who both want the control. And it just, at the end of the day, too many cooks in the proverbial kitchen. Mm-hmm. I think this goes back to the examples that I said that you're very into your solitary endeavors, you know, whether it's just like studying an instrument, being the chef in the kitchen, as you mentioned, or being the jujitsu entrepreneur. That being said, both of you guys were fantastic together. You had great chemistry on the show. So thanks. Hey, man, you know what? And, and like, I don't regret that for a second. It was a lot of fun. And starting a, a passion project like that, like, that's what I'm all about, man. It is so cool. And any way that you can monetize jujitsu is so cool. Like I, it's not an easy industry to make it in. You have to be aware of your strengths and you have to know what you can provide. But like, I'm obsessed with jujitsu. It's my life. Steve is an incredibly intelligent person. Like the, the, he is so, he can do things with computers and things like that. Like he is so smart. He deserves all the success in the world for sure. And, uh, you know, there's a reason why his, his show is as successful it is as it is and my ego now is like 
motherfucker, I need to get my show that successful because I need to like go to the family dinners and be like, hey, how many how many downloads did you have last week, right? But he's way ahead of me right now. It was interesting. I remember listening to the show and during the period of, you know, let's talk about the lockdowns and, and what that happened in, in the academy. Can you walk me through your panic and your scrambling and, you know, to survive and tread water and like everyone else? What was that period like for you? I just think it's funny how like now it's fashionable to talk about how COVID was such bullshit. And at the time, if you said something, people literally stopped talking to you because they thought that you were uh, killing their family or whatever. I don't blame people for being afraid. Fear can do crazy things to people. And it was a scary time. Okay, here's here was my thought process around the what was it? 2019, the winter of 2019, we started hearing this this virus in China and how we started seeing images of from China of them locking people down. You know, first of all, I'm Chinese and China is a communist fucking shithole. Okay, they make our products and they're so oppressive. They have uh, open concentration camps for Muslims right now. China is fucked. Anyways, just to get that off my chest, I don't want my country really anything like China. But China's very oppressive to their people. I know people who live over there. And like I said, they have a lot go- going on. So I don't trust anything that comes from Chinese news. And I don't trust anything that comes from like the mainstream news, really. The COVID really opened my eyes to that. So I'm seeing all these people dying. And I'm like, holy shit, like, okay, there's this virus out. Is this like Resident Evil? Like, what is this? And then they're like, Oh, and now it's coming to us. It's coming over here and all this stuff. And oh, it's, oh, guess one day we hear that 10 people got COVID or now it's 50 people got COVID. Then now it's thousands of people were like, okay, what's the mortality rate? Oh, well, 99.8% people survive it. And the people who die are all like obese or 80. But other than that, you know, it's very deadly and you need, you know, it's a pandemic and we need to all this fear mongering. I'm like, man, like, do you guys see what's going on? Like uh, when it happened, the lockdowns happened in like March or something. And I didn't want to close my gym because I had just become independent. I just quit my job and I was steamrolling in jujitsu. I was like, I don't want to close my gym. Right. But I did. I, I closed it for a couple months. And um, th- what I was told by the figures in my life, my family, my coach, other people that I knew, they all said, well, if you don't close your gym, like people will die. And not only will people die, Brazilian jiu-jitsu will look bad because the news will cover how people died training at your gym. I heard this from so many fucking people and I'm like, okay, guys, I will close for whatever. And then flatten the curve was supposed to be a couple of weeks. I thought it was a ludicrous idea from the beginning. But again, did you back do then, uh, the Zoom classes? Do, did you? Were your students supporting you? They're still monthly, the few, or, or were people? So, here, so, so here's what we did. We did we did a couple of Zoom classes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I Those can't sucked. believe <laughs> I can't believe people would pay for that. Honestly, at some point, I just was like. But were they, though? Were they paying for that or were they per- paying for you? You know what I mean? Like, well, yeah. When I was doing it, I, I was supporting the Academy because, you know, they mean everything to me. A lot of people even kept paying, even though I said, don't pay me. And they're like, no, like, I want to pay you. And I'm like, you're the fucking man. Thank you so much. And so we did a couple of Zoom classes for the kids. But then after that, I was like, you know what? This isn't my product. I'm not selling this anymore. I didn't feel right. I stopped the Zoom classes. I just told the guys, I said, hey, and I was doing I was doing payments by pen and paper. I was taking e-transfers. I didn't have an automated payment system where people would keep getting charged. So I was like, you know what? I'm not taking any more payments. I said, we're closed indefinitely. 
hopefully something will happen and, and we will open up again. And then me and a skeleton crew of people, maybe like 20 people, 30 people who still wanted to train. I basically told my group we're closed. And then I, I came up with these group of hardcore guys and I said, listen, guys, I want to train. And some of you guys have told me things about your mental health that disturb me. And I realized the role of jujitsu in your life and the role of jujitsu in my life. And we can be safe and all that shit. Are we interested in having a skeleton crew and kind of training with the doors closed and the, and the, the windows boarded up? They all said, yes, please. I said, okay, we're going to have a skeleton crew. There's a secret knock. We train at these times, et cetera, et cetera. We take precautions, blah, blah, blah. The cops never came. I do know people where the cops came, but they never came. And then eventually, I can't remember what happened. Maybe they loosened restrictions or something in the summer. And we went back, we opened. I think they tried to close us again. And I was like, no, not closing again, not doing it. And I basically said, you know, if we do get closed, like if, if cops come to the door, I want everyone to get out your phones and record what's about to happen because I'm going away in handcuffs. I don't care. I'm going to sit in the middle of the mats in the gym that I built with my fucking hands and they're going to have to actually tase me. Like that's, that's actually what I was saying. I was like, because at this point, this is around the time I remember the government here wanted me to start checking people's vaccines and you weren't allowed to go to a restaurant or a movie theater if you weren't vaccinated. Like crazy, crazy discrimination. And me, I'm kind of like a classical liberal who all my friends who don't talk to me anymore think I'm alt-right. But I believe that someone's medical decision isn't my business. Again, my ego, I was going on my Instagram stories and saying, we've crossed the Rubicon officially. Like the government is telling me that I have to check my client's medical records to let them in. Fuck you. Not happening. All of you guys, welcome to my school. You're never going to be checked for vaccines. And anyone else in the lower mainland who's been kicked out of their gym, and I know a couple, they, they joined me. I said, come visit me because I will not check you. You will not need to be vaccinated to train here. I'm not some just stop -o thug who's going to do that. And I'm not going to shill for Justin Trudeau, the biggest piece of shit that we've ever had as a leader in this country. So I said, I'm just not doing it. I'm not playing this game anymore. Like you guys are going to have to come in with thugs and literally pull me off the mats and you're going to get keel hooked if you do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it was, it was, it was crazy times, man. I was, I was like, my back is against the wall. I was talking to all my gym owner friends. We all felt like caged dogs in the corner with like, okay, they're trying to take away how I feed my family. When you take that away from a man, you put him in a position where it's kind of like a hill to die on. And at the same time, they're trying to get me to take their free money. And I don't want the government's money. I want money that I earned with my craft that I've dedicated my life to. I don't know if I answered your question or not, but that was kind of like my COVID experience. And then, of course, lots of people left. There were people in the gym who uh, didn't like my opinion, and that's fine. They left and maybe they quit jujitsu forever. Maybe they joined someone else. I don't mind that. I wish them well. And I'm happy for them because for every one person that left, five amazing people joined. It was shocking how much support I was getting behind the scenes because nobody wanted to say the stuff that I was saying, but they all would message me and be like, dude, keep going. Like, I respect how you're defending your life, you know, how you're making money in this crazy situation. And I respect how you're not checking people's medical, the vaccine stuff. The vaccine stuff was so weird. And now we're just pretending like it never happened. I mean, 
when I think about it, it makes me feel uneasy because I'm like, well, they could just do that again and everyone else will fall in line. I now here's the, here's my main takeaways from COVID. OK, main takeaways from COVID. OK, those people that said that they would have stood up against the Nazis. No, no, they would not. They would go right along with it. People want to act like, oh, I would go against the tyranny or whatever. Bullshit. All these people fell in line. And I, my biggest problem was I was trying to change their minds. And I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong of me. That's where I was wrong. I was very loud because I thought if I was super loud, I could change people's minds. I was wrong. And what I should have done was I just should have wished people well and just kept weeding my garden. Wow. I had no idea, Matt. That's so crazy. Especially, you know, did you not and, follow my, my shit? No, did you not? no, I, I did. Oh I thought you were God. gone, dude. I thought you went off grid, but yeah, like it was, it was bad here. When they started telling me, Hey, you got to check your students vaccine things. And if you don't, we're going to find you. I was like, these are crazy. No way. I thought it was supposed to be Canada. I thought it was supposed to be freedom and accept everyone for their, you know, and I just kind of looked at, at everyone and I'm like, all right, well, we're just going to train. You know, this is crazy. I did not expect this tonight. That's for sure. Really? Oh, crazy, dude. <laughs> not I mean, at all, bro. I know. I know. Obviously, there's things that you I thought don't I want. was going to be like, uh, you know, walking on sort of eggshells here, like be careful about this topic and all this stuff. No, man, <laughs> dude. And whatever is good for your show, leave in here or take out. I'd, it's your show. OK, but now you know where I stood on it and I still stand on it. Like there's a couple main takeaways. Don't try to t- change people's minds. People can be terrified and make irrational decisions because of the terror. People will not admit if they made a mistake and people will cut you out of their life forever. And also, I don't trust what I see on the TV at all anymore. And I don't trust my government at all anymore. So it it was actually positive in a lot of ways. It was negative in a lot of ways and it was positive in a lot of ways. You know what's interesting about this, though, is that like my next question, one of them was going to be if you felt like you've found your voice yet. And what I mean by that is it's um, (laughs) and and that's so funny because here you are like just giving me authentic Matt here. I thought you were like this guy sort of adrift, you know, BJJ mental models went away. You were struggling with the academy, struggling to pay the bills and all the stuff, which maybe you were, you weren't. Because, you know, when we're young and stuff, we're not really teaching as ourselves or being a leader as ourselves. We're sort of emulating others or mimicking others, really, to some extent, until we sort of become ourselves, right? And I get the feeling that you are sort of, you're very comfortable in your own skin, but I, I don't know. Dude, I came up in kitchens. I'm basically the same thing as a construction worker. When it's in the in the cooking industry, it's all just like the most toxic, funny, and I have the gallows humor. I'm not politically correct. And some people will toe the line, okay? I don't go into my a lot of these opinions on the podcast because I want to keep it about the topic that I'm talking about. I want to keep it professional, but I'm totally down, you know. If you came on my show and started asking me about this stuff, I would be 100% honest with everything. I got into a lot of trouble in the culinary arts. A lot of what I did in that kitchen was me opening my big mouth, opening my opinions and getting into trouble. Throughout my life, I've gotten into trouble by wearing my heart on my sleeve. And that's just how I am. So I think I've already kind of found my quote voice. I think that, you know, you have to be authentic and I don't want, I don't want people to get a a polished version of me. That's not authentic. My whole business model my whole lifestyle is based around me being true to who I am and being true to jujitsu and whatnot. So I am what I am and I'm unapologetic about it. I'm not a hateful person. You know, I'm actually quite accepting and quite loving. 
there's certain topics that I, that do frustrate me and people can label me whatever they want. And it's, it's just, it is what it is. But I know in my heart that I'm not motivated by like hate or anything like that. So it's not an issue. I remember in culinary arts in the hotel industry, I got into a big shit because the cooks weren't getting tipped out from banquet sales. So the cooks who are providing all the food aren't getting any tips. The servers are getting all the tips, right? And this is all tax free. And so I remember me being a first cook and being there at the hotel for like nine years or whatever, being like, oh, guys, I wrote a letter, a petition to get the cooks more tips. And like everyone in the kitchen signed it except for like two people. And I took it all the way up to the top and I was sitting in the meeting with the GM and the regional manager and going off about how this is, I didn't say this, but like it was fucking bullshit how we were doing the majority of the work and not getting the compensation. And when they turned me down, basically, first of all, my whole reputation was gone. Like now I'm blacklisted as the cook who went against the managers, but I, I was happy with it. I was content with it because I had known that, okay, this proves to me that this industry is fucked and it's not going to change. And I shouldn't try to change it. I tried to change it. I'm done trying to change it now. I'm going to go do my own thing, be my own boss. And that was like one of the last things that happened before I did that. So like, I've never had an issue with public speaking. I've never had an issue saying uncomfortable things. That being said, I'm not going to go off in class and be like crazy inappropriate or anything. I don't treat my class at the gym like I would how things were in the kitchen, right? I'm still a business owner and I want to be a professional and I have kids that train under me and I have to set a good example and all that shit. But I like to joke. I like to have fun and I have a dark sense of humor too. Touching on some of that then is I've been into the topic of dogma lately and specifically like jujitsu dogma. And what I mean by that, sometimes I hear things like uh, old positions or something that may or may not work. Like, for example, in nogi or something like that, you know, that, that we thought maybe transferred in the gi, you know, just all this like various sort of jujitsu dogma. When I, when I mentioned jujitsu dogma, sort of what comes to mind for you? That the gi is dead. People think the gi is dead. People think omoplatas don't work. People think barambolos don't work. People think closed guard and no gi doesn't work. Things like that. I think everything works at the right time. And there's techniques that I've thought don't work in the past. And then I, I learn a new insight, usually by watching instructionals and match footage and whatnot. And I'm like, oh, it does work. Holy shit. Like one of the biggest ones I love is how guys are like, like kind of like Greg Souders about the gi, right? And like, hey man, you can hate the gi. I have guys that only want to do gi. The majority of my guys prefer no gi. And the gi is part of jiu-jitsu. It's part of the heritage of jiu-jitsu. I love it. At the same time, I hate it because I wish I was better at it, but I'm not going to stop doing it. And I, it's not dead. That being said, is there more professional opportunities in nogi? Yeah. The nogi shows tend to pay more money. People want to watch nogi more. That's true. But there's always going to be a Mundials. There's always going to be IBJJF and gi competitions. If anything, it's getting more popular. So this whole thing about how the gi is falling away and all this stuff, I mean, I love it. It's jujitsu. Therefore, I love it. That is interesting because, you know, the growth of Nogi in terms of just business-wise, anecdotally, it seems like um, within academies, it, it seems like the vast majority still is Gi, but Nogi is growing very quickly, especially with the, I would say, the younger demo. Is that sort of agreed upon? Yeah. Even with kids or what? Kids program and things like that, too? Mm, the kids kind of do whatever I tell them to do. <laughs> they do whatever I tell them to do. They follow my lead, which is super cool. Like I have a couple of t uh, students who are teachers in high schools and they're 
trying to get jujitsu as part of like a, an extracurricular course now. And one of the main things that they, the students tell them, they're like, yeah, okay, Mr. So-and-so I want to, I'll join that team. And then they're like, oh, okay. Like, what do you want to do? Gi or no gi? And they're like, oh, not gi, only no gi. Like we're not interested at all in the gi. Right. So from what I've heard from like young people, high school people who have a choice in the matter, they don't want to put the gi on from what I've heard. Okay. But like the students at my gym, if you train with me, you're going to wear the gi, right? If you don't want to wear the gi, that's fine. You only train a couple times a week. Then the other days are gi days, right? What makes a great jujitsu student for you? Passion, dedication, someone who studies, someone who trains mentally and physically, someone who knows that it's an endless journey and that there's, there's hardships and there's a lot of hardships. There's a lot of injuries. The highs are super high. The lows are low. Someone who has a Kaizen mindset, you know, someone who's like every day I want to get a little bit better. I know I can't get where I want to be today or tomorrow, but if I keep training, if I keep practicing, I can get there. And with the help of a good coach, maybe one day I can make a living off of this. If we're talking kids, the biggest thing that bothers me, honestly, is the crying in class. It didn't used to bother me as much, but recently we got a couple kids who are really big into crying and crying, I think, almost just for attention rather than crying because they're actually hurt because kids cry when they're hurt. And hey, that's fine. I have two kids. OK, I'm not a hard ass. I, when they cry, I'm comforting them and everything like that. But when it's like a small, small thing and there's carrying on and whining and complaining and all this and disrupting, that's what bothers me. So I think the ideal student looks at the other kids in the class. I'm just using kids as an example, but adults are also the same. Looks at the other kids in the class and understands that their progress is common, that if everyone in this room gets better, I also get better. It's not about me versus them. When the tide rises, all the boats rise and float, right? It's all about bringing the level in the room to a different level, pushing each other. When you're fighting your training partner, you're not trying to kick. Well, you are, you are trying to beat them. You're trying to kick their ass, but you don't, you're not trying to hurt them. You're trying to make them better. Okay. So it's just as important that you make your teammates better as it is that you make yourself better. That's what I think a, a great student does. Of course, the Kaizen mindset, the studying, the dedication, all of that. But someone who looks at someone else's journey, looks at the person next to them and says, your journey is very important to me as well. It's not just me trying to be the best. I want to make you succeed as well. I think one of the best characteristics that a person can have, and certainly I think leaders should have, is find pleasure in the success of others rather than trying to put others down so that they look more successful. It seems to be a recurring thing with you that I keep hearing is the importance of um, the success of others, whether it's kids or you know your older competitors or whatever it may be. I'll say this. If you're planning on being a martial arts owner, gym owner, or a coach even, if you don't enjoy the success of other people, don't do it. Just don't do it. You won't be doing anyone a favor. You're going to become exposed eventually. If you're the kind of person who, you know, you have competitors in your area and you don't want to see them succeed and whatnot, like just don't do it. If you're putting out a good product and you deserve it, you will be successful. If you put out a shitty product and you still expect people to pay you, I mean, you're not going to be that successful. So I would just say be authentic. And and when when you see someone like even people that I've competed against that have kicked my ass in competition. I'm like, fuck, I wish I won. Why did I lose to that guy? I see them win a, a, a big event. I'm like, good for you. That's fucking awesome that you could go out there and win that. You know, like I'm happy for you. There's varying levels of 
like success, right? Like when you say, you know, be happy that you see the success in your students or whatever as a coach, that success could be, hey, the kid didn't cry today. Or it could be that guy lost the 10 pounds. Or, you know, it could be this guy's winning gold medals like crazy. That's fantastic. It could even just be they came to training today. Another thing that it's been interesting me, some conversations that I've had with people too, is that that resiliency factor, you know, where some people like, in, they go to a academy their first time, right? And they get all beat up, beat up. And they're like, oh, that was rad. Now this works. You know, that's fantastic. I want to go that back. That was me. Whereas that like there's other people and I was the opposite, right? I show up, I get beat up, beat up. I'm like, maybe this isn't for me, man. Maybe I need to quit. Like I always quit things because of that negative negative feedback right it's a perception thing right yeah so like how do you deal because i'm sure you've interfaced with these two different types if not there's more probably a spectrum of this but uh how do you deal with that so i'm a coach i'm not a cheerleader if someone comes in and they say oh this is really hard and i don't know if i can do this or whatever and i i usually say you know whether you think you can or you think you can't you're right all I can tell you is this is a hard journey. You're basically paying me to put yourself into really uncomfortable positions and you're trying to learn how to make those uncomfortable positions a little bit more tolerable. And occasionally you might choke a motherfucker out. <laughs> it'll be it'll feel really good. And then there's going to be other days where people are sweating on you, your face is going to get scraped up. You get black eyes or heaven forbid you get a bad injury. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's going to be hard at times. And it's your choice where you want to take this. If you want to just come in and have fun and that's okay. And if you want to come in and try and compete, that's also okay. If you really love this and you just want to do it, I'll take you as far as I possibly can. If you don't want to do this, you don't need to come. My product, like I said, I don't market my, myself at all with ads or anything. People come to me because of my reputation, I guess the content and all that good shit. So it's like this sport isn't for everyone. That's the truth. I can understand why someone does not want to get fucked up couple nights of the week and get smashed and whatnot. I get it. That makes total sense. Personally, for me, I love it, but it's not for everyone. I'm not you. You're not me. And I can only motivate you so much to come to class. So if, if you feel like you can't come to class because you're not enjoying it, you sh probably shouldn't come because I want you to enjoy it, right? I want you to see the beauty in it. I want you to see the brilliance of what we do. I don't care how bad it is, okay? Nothing that is great is easy. Everything that is worth doing is really fucking hard, and this will be hard, but if you stick with it and if you can learn to enjoy the beatings, it will repay you in so many great ways. You know, I've never said these words to anyone, but this is my mentality. I've never had someone come to me and say, hey, Matt, like I'm really having trouble like coming to class. I've never really had that. And if and, you know, usually they, these people, they just don't come anymore. And that's OK, because like I said, it's not for everyone. I'm not a squash player. I'm not a bowler. I'm not a tennis player. I can't force myself to like those things. And someone else can't force themselves to like jujitsu, right? All I can do is once you get to the gym, I can try and teach you. I can try to help you and try and share knowledge with you and share my experiences with you. And a lot of the time after class, honestly, people come to me with personal issues and like, you know, a good coach stays and listens and tries to help when they're not getting paid to do that. Like I, I wear a lot of hats at the gym. One of those hats I wear is like a counselor and I'm happy to do that too, because I have my, a lot of my students help me through hard times as well. What's interesting you right now, technique wise in uh, jujitsu? What's, what's sort of piquing your mm -hmm. interest as of late? 
You know, it's so funny, right? Like I do that uh, upside down instructional with Stefan casting over there. And I, I loved Barambolos when I was like purple, brown. I was like, and then I was getting into leg locks. I'm like, man, that, like I'm on the cutting edge shit, right? Like I, I don't Barambolo people at all. Barely ever. Okay. And and in competition, I'm no Mikey Musumeki. I'm no uh, Gianni Grippo. Okay. I just really was fascinated with that system and there wasn't a lot of content out there. So I tried to study it and develop my own content and the fancy stuff that I was once sort of in love with. Now that I'm a black belt and I'm 35, I'm more interested in immobilization, a half guard passing, mount, side control, top pins. Honestly, I don't even like to take the back anymore. I just like to crush people from the top. And the main thing that I've focused on for the last two months has just been to develop a really strong cross face. Like I really want to develop a cross face that once I get there, I, I knew that my partner would have a hell of a time escaping because for the longest time I was doing it wrong. And I realized that. And part of me realizing that was watching Gordon Ryan's half guard passing instructional. And I'm like, here we go. Watch it. Yeah. I got to plug it. <laughs> for no, literally no kickback. Um, I'm watching how he's doing it and I'm like, oh, I've been totally doing it wrong. I've been leaving pressure on the table and not applying it the way that I could. And then I started making some adjustments. I started playing with it. And, and I'll, a lot of uh, the Greg Souders ecological approach, you just put more time in, in these positions. Half guard is something we do almost every class in some way, shape or form. And so this half guard passing stuff and these pinning with pressure is like, I love it. It really shows control. If you can control someone, prevent them from moving and remain in an offensive pin. Fuck, for me, there's nothing better than that right now. Isn't that weird how that sort of come back into the zeitgeist? Everyone sort of just forgot about pinning and controlling position. It was all about barambolos and leg locks. And these things move in trends because, you know, jiu-jitsu is an arms race, right? Everyone needs to learn these attacks. Otherwise, they get caught with them. If you didn't know how to do a barambolo or you don't know how to defend it, you're going to get caught with it and you need to learn it. And then everyone learns it. And now it's like, oh, now I don't want to do it anymore because my opponents know it. So what can I do? Well, let's just go back to the fundamentals. You know, half guard passing, mount, pressure. Gordon Ryan really opened my eyes to that when I was just watching him and he used to be a leg locker. He would just pull guard every time, enter the legs, heel hook everyone. Then everyone started doing heel hooks and he's like, uh, I'm going to switch my game to a top player. Now he just crushes everyone. He's the best guard passer in jujitsu, like by far. And when he gets on top of you, the the person just never gets out. And I'm, I'm watching him. I'm like, how is he doing that? You know, obviously he's huge and he's on juice and all this shit. Like, and he's amazing. And I'm like, how is he doing this? I need to know. I need to know how he's using this like old school jujitsu and just dominating these black belts and making them look like white belts. So that's been a huge focus for me is really dialing in half guard passing and basically just old school jujitsu. It will never go away. The old school fundamentals. That's the shit right there. Another big trend right now is the just get up movement. Your thoughts on that? The whole wrestling up stuff? Because mm -hmm. I guess it's the whole, it's the other side of the coin in terms of the pinning. Yeah. Like the, the Craig Jones, just stand up instructional. I found it incredibly useful. I really like Craig's instructionals. Uh, he's kind of shifted his instructionals after B team was created. I mean, the guy is like, he's basically a comedian at this point and he's very,
very much into making his instructionals based around like novelties, like 12 false reap accusations, power bottom power. It's all about like, you know, sexual innuendos and stuff. And honestly, I find, I find it tiresome, honestly, but the content, the content is awesome and it's very, very unorthodox. So like power ride, he has an instructional called power ride. It's all about pinning, but not in the conventional way that we would think of in jujitsu. It's not pins that score you points. It's pins that just make the person's life hell on the bottom, which is what I'm all about these days, right? So I'm just watching it. I'm like, hmm, I'm not going to score using these pins, but like the person can't move. They can't build height. They can't get into base. This is pretty fucking awesome, honestly. So I take a lot of stuff from there. And the just stand up movement is great, too, because with ADCC, you know, it's a completely different rule set from IBJJF. We got ADCC Vancouver coming up here in August 19th. My team is getting ready. I'm getting ready. And just standing up is a huge part of that rule set, because if you get taken down, you're going to you have to get up. You have to go to turtle. Now you're fighting the back takes. Now you're fighting the front heads. You're fighting body locks, all this shit. So it's like he really goes into depth into just stand up and talks about all these different situations. So because of ADCC becoming so popular, as we've seen in the last couple of years, we're going to see a lot of this style jujitsu, this sort of wrestle jujitsu style. And it's it's super fun and it's super primal <laughs> for any for lack of a better word. It's like if I don't get up, I'm I'm losing type thing. You know, it's it's a wrestling tournament with submissions. IBJJF, you don't need to wrestle at all. You just need to have a good guard. And that's that's the base of my jujitsu. And now I'm like, OK, well, if, if we're going to do ADCC, like I got to just stand up. So it's I think it's the climate of the current jujitsu tournament situation. That's why that's happening. What do you wish you were better at? I mean, gi in general, like when I say I'm, I wish I was better at gi, understand I'm not horrible. I'm at a very interesting weight class where I'm a small middleweight. I'm even small for lightweight. I should be a featherweight, but because my torso is so thick, like I'm thick ribbed and I'm thick around the midsection, I have the torso of probably like a 200 pound man and it's a short torso. So I'm short. My limbs are long, but my body is short. It's really weird, right? I used to be a lightweight. Now I'm just like, fuck it. I'm just going to go up to middleweight and like put on some muscle, put on some weight. And so I always kind of feel understrengthed. Even at lightweight at times, I felt understrengthed. I wish I was better at gi in general, but if I had to be specific, I would say takedowns. I wish I was better at judo. Okay. Uh, my wrestling pretty decent. I think it can hang in an ADCC situation, maybe not the world championship level, but like at opens and probably trials. Anyways, we'll see because I'm going to do that competition. I'm planning on doing East Coast trials this year. So we'll see how that goes. But in the gi with judo, like if you go against someone who's really good at judo, it's tough. And a lot of it comes from my fingers are like so fucked. So it's, I don't really have, <laughs> I, I tape every finger like, dude, like just... That's so surprising that you see, you keep mentioning gi because you've been doing gi forever, man, and your fingers right there are a definition of that. I would have expected that you would have said something else completely, like the usual wrestling. You mentioned takedowns. So that's it's shocking that you mentioned the gi because you've been doing it for so long. I feel much more confident with my wrestling than my judo. Okay. Usually in the gi, I'll pull guard. So I want to kind of change that, right? Because sometimes I pull guard and I'm like, man, these middleweights are like big. They're explosive. They're good guard passers. I kind of put myself at a disadvantage by just taking the bottom position. You know what I mean? So I should work to just stay on top more. Honestly, I do a lot more damage when I'm on top. I feel understand that my partial disdain for the gi comes from the fact that I don't have a lot of guys at my level at my size in my academy. 
all the guys at my academy are generally bigger and stronger. And the guys that are a higher level are much bigger by at least 30 pounds. So it's like, it's tough for me. You know, the gi is a strength amplifier and going against someone much bigger than you. It's like, I feel like I'm always playing from a disadvantageous position. If I had a bunch of guys my size, you know, that were my level in the gi, it would be really enjoyable, but it's not because everyone's trying to kill me in my own academy and doing a good job of it. And the bigger guys, you know, it's, it's hard to train with them in the gi. That's so interesting that you say gi is a strength amplifier. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it it is, right? If you know how to properly use it, the amount of control that you can generate over someone with the gi is, is preposterous, right? But I'm much more of a natural no-gi player. Early on, as you mentioned, base posture structure, the early days of, you know, Bernanke and that whole thing. And I remember you guys early on in mental models too, was base posture structure, base posture structure. And I, I didn't really get it initially, but although I would parrot it, you know, and it seems like one of those things just for me in general, that as the years went by or as I'm like, you know, you go through jujitsu, oh, this is making sense now. Do you think that's more of an advanced thing? And it seems like your viewpoints on that has sort of evolved, uh, listening to one of your podcasts, that you you have other sort of factors that you've broken these things into now, too. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, my jujitsu and my outlook on jujitsu has never stayed still. You know, in terms of the whole base posture structure thing, I remember first learning about that and being like, holy shit, this is the best way to learn jujitsu. This is the best way to explain jujitsu. I almost got dogmatic myopic with it. I was like, I was like, this is the best way. And now I look at it and I'm like, it's something everyone needs to know, but there's so many ways to learn jujitsu. There's so many ways that you could, that you can teach jujitsu. It's endless really. So when I look at it now, I kind of just look at it as like, it's something everyone should know. And it's something that you can get a lot of mileage out if you're new, or even if you're advanced, you know, it can help you understand the actual physics and biomechanics behind jujitsu. That's, I think, Rob's biggest contribution to jujitsu is is that base posture structure formula because it is really, really good. It's really important. Is it the only way or the best way to teach jujitsu? Who knows? I've changed my opinion on that. I study a lot of Danaher and Gordon. These guys use very, very specific techniques. Then you go to a guy like Greg Souders and he's like, don't tell them how to do anything or, or don't, you know, give them basic ideas and, and constraints to work within and let them self-organize, right? I shouldn't say, he doesn't say don't tell them anything, but he's not as specific with techniques, right? So there's so many different ways to learn. And you're going to tell me that Danaher and Gordon are doing it wrong like it's just that's crazy but at the same time who's right is there a right way is there a best way i don't know i like to always look at the top athletes and top coaches and look at their content and i kind of just take everything and put it into a blender and try and put my own spin on it and my own interpretations on it and hey this detail worked really good for me i think it can help you right or another thing i do is i i look at like what are the common issues when you're learning a technique what kind of common issues do i see around the room if everyone's making the same mistakes then hey that's an indication that that is something that needs to be fixed because we're all just naturally making the same mistake. And then you fix that and everyone's like, oh, and they get to the next level, right? So as much as I love base posture structure as a theory, maybe I'm spoiled, but like that, that was years ago. And now I'm trying to really go into my systems and trying to find even better ways to teach jujitsu. But you could always explain why something works in terms of physics and science using base posture structure, which I think is immeasurably valuable. Agreed. Now, you mentioned earlier jiu-jitsu in a shorter time. I'm curious, um, do, do you believe we can get people to black belt in a shorter amount of time 
in your general classes now? You know, let's say three times a week or, or something like that person. My standards of what a black belt is? You're talking about like, can I make a black belt in that amount of time? Like whose standards are we talking about here? And what is a short amount of time? Traditionally, we say 10 years, right? That's been the yeah. traditional black belt right. journey. That's getting upended now also because kids are starting at a much younger age now, right? I think the whole notion of bell colors in general is sort of like up for a question. The general adult, let's say. A ge okay, a general adult. I mean, again, I don't know what a short amount of time is. I don't know if that's three years, like your BJ Penn, or if that's you know six years or whatever. I will say this, three times a week. Are you studying when you get home? Are you thinking about jujitsu? Like, are you just a talented freak who can do crazy things with their body? Because those people are out there. I think it's, I think anything's possible. Man. Let's, yeah, let's not go with the outlier. Let's say the average Joe. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> it, un, under my standards, three days a week, if you're an average person, no, you're not going to be a black belt. But what, okay. And I, I assume a training session is what? One class? like two hours a day, it's going to be tough. It's going to be real tough. Maybe not impossible. Like I said, there's some talented people out there, but four days a week, maybe. What maybe. is the threshold here? It depends if they're doing the things off the mats too. If they're doing everything right, if they have the finances and the time to dedicate to it, if they have, if they're surrounded by the right coaches and the right teammates, it could be possible. I think it's going to be very unlikely, but perhaps four days a week, you know, black belt in like six, seven years. Yeah, I could see it. Keep in mind the instruction that we got, or I, how long have you trained for? Seven, eight years now. Okay, cool. So you've been training quite a while. So I've been training 14, 15 years. When I first started, the content that was available was like nothing. Nowadays, we can go to BJJ Fanatics and watch Gordon Ryan and John Danaher and Craig Jones. We can subscribe online and watch the Mendez Bros lessons that they teach. We can have our techniques reviewed by you. Yeah, you could do that. It's infinite amounts of information from the top minds in the sport. It's not even fair. So you should be getting better faster because you have all this information at your disposal and we know it works at the highest level. So mathematically, yeah, you should be able to get better faster than when we first started and it was 10 years. So yes, I do think so. I also think that there is a difference between the average Joe starting when he's like 25 and a kid starting when they're six. There's a really cool book. Can't remember what it's called. I think it's called Raising a Genius or How to Raise a Genius. It's a gentleman who uh, he, he raised his, uh, a few of his daughters to become like world-class chess players. And he basically says, if you want your child to be a master of something, start them before they're six years old, right? So like at four, start them in something and have the majority of the training based around play. And then when they become six years old, start putting more pressure on them to produce at a higher level, right? And if you do that, man, it's amazing what kids can do when they start that young and they're just submersed in something. But that being said, that's not how a kid who started at five, by the time he turns 20, he's been training for 15 years. You know what I mean? So my goal as an instructor working with some of these kids, and I got some fucking talented kids, man. My job is to make sure that I can get them the best information possible in the shortest amount of time possible to increase their learning and maximize their potential as efficiently as possible. Like no one did that for me, but I look at that as like, okay, that's my contribution to some of these kids. 
because that's the reality of of training nowadays is these other kids have crazy advantages. We got to kind of level the playing field and I got to be studying as much as I can and then condensing it to a file that I can put into the kid's mind and they actually care about and they understand and they can use, right? That's my challenge as a as a coach. That sort of goes to my assertion here that jujitsu, you can get better jujitsu in a shorter time than traditionally we have because people like yourself and, and other coaches, I would assume, hopefully, are this information is readily available and you can disseminate it now in, in such a better way. And it's just, it's had more time to evolve all this information and teaching styles and the data itself. So you would think, okay, you're getting the stuff better than I did, you know, back in the day. You should be improving in a quicker time frame, notwithstanding the other stuff we were talking about, the external sort of training, et cetera. Yeah. And it's, it's not even exclusive to jujitsu. I mean, you see this in all sports. You see this in a lot of different skills, right? When kids start at a young age and in the modern world with all the content out there, whatever it is, you know, I just recently got back into hockey, right? Like I'm a Canuck, we play hockey up here. And so I played for years when I was a kid. I was not very good. I was not talented. Most of my hockey journey was me just trying not to fuck up and and make myself look like an idiot, which is a totally a wrong mindset for an athlete, by the way. So I didn't have mentors in hockey. Everything I learned was just from, it was basically self-taught and just being just ice time, right? I didn't have someone saying, Hey, try this, try this. You know, I didn't have great coaches up here. I was like a house player, right? Like not high level. And so I never had access to great coaches or mentors, but I recently got back into hockey last year. My buddy asked me, he's like, Hey, we're going to start a beer league team. Do you want to be on it? I'm like, Oh fuck. Okay. Like I'll buy new skates. I'll get some new gear. And I basically was like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to approach this as a white belt and I'm going to go on YouTube and just look up hockey content or whatever and see, see what some of these coaches are saying. And the amount of content that was available blew my mind, man. I, I, I didn't have access to any of this stuff when I was a kid. And now I'm like, what if I was a kid and I had all this stuff, all these techniques, all these concepts and things that would have made me a way better hockey player. And so I'm like, Man, like kids nowadays, because of just the information and the social media, this explosion of shared information, we should see these kids get way better than us, right? I always tell my kids, like, I don't swear, but I always say, like, you know, in five years, like, you're going to fuck me up, dude. You're going to be like 15, 16, getting close to entering your prime. And some of these kids on a technical level, they're insane. And if they were my size, like, they would give me trouble, you know? (laughs) So it's crazy. It motivates me because I want them to be better. And I want to be better so that when they get older, I can still help them get better. Who's exciting you right now in terms of like jujitsu? Well, GSB just signed a deal to have a grappling match with Damian Maya. I mean, I'm looking forward to that. There's a quintet event that's coming up that I think is really cool. I think quintet is extremely exciting. I love Gordon. I love seeing him fight everyone. And I don't love him because of who he is or his beliefs or anything like that. I love him because he can take the highest level guys and just beat them. And I want to see him lose. I want to see someone be able to beat him because he's so dominant. I just, every time I watch this guy, like that last uh, no time limit match with Pena, everyone's like, it's so boring. It's so boring. I'm like, do you like jujitsu? I like watching these two guys go at it and watch the chess match that's happening. I actually like no time limit. I know a lot of people don't. I want to say that I like Craig Jones and Nikki Rod, but honestly, their last couple of matches have just been like super boring, except for Nikki Rod. That last match against Big Dan was 
pretty sick. That was awesome how he passed his guard, beat him in overtime, that armbar escape. Like Nicky Rod generally has like kind of a keep away style. And then when he sees a body lock, he jumps on it. But like I am a Nicky Rod fan. Like I, I like him. I watched his body lock instructional. I got a lot of good details out of it. Another guy that's, I think, really, uh, really sick, Colabate. I really like Tynan Dalpra. Basically, anyone from AOJ, I fucking love. It's the craziest movement. I look at them and like, it's not just the Mendez bros. They're able to like teach their movement to their students. And I'm like, man, how the fuck are they doing that? Like the way that they move is so cool. I remember coming up and the Mendez bros were the ones to beat and they were the best in the world. And I still think they're the best in the world. They just don't compete anymore. And uh, really looking up to those guys, watching those guys and like loving their jujitsu. So any basically anyone at the highest level of AOJ, Oh man, you know who I love so much? Diego Pato. His, he, he's so sick. Like some of those leg locks that he was getting at ADCC were so sick. Obviously the Rotolos, those guys excite me. I mean, there's a lot of exciting athletes in jiu-jitsu right now and it's, it's super cool. Your media, I want to touch on that too, because you've got like two YouTube channels. One old one, I think is your uh, personal one or something like that. One that you had with like five videos on it. I don't really post to my Matt Kwan one anymore. There was a time I was kind of just like dicking around on there, putting uh, technique videos on it. But now I have like my online academy. So I put, I contribute to that most of the time. And that's how you can support my podcast is check that out. But I actually started my online academy because I actually wanted a place for my students to go where I could put content and record the classes and put it on there so that if they missed class, they could go look at it. And it's called On Guard BJJ, you guys, by the way. On Guard BJJ. You can go to to onguardbjj.com. There's a join button where you can check out the online academy. It's 10 bucks a month. Uh, you get access to all my lessons, my seminars, my competition footage. I film it all. I put it all on there. Competition footage from like blue belt days when I was so fucking bad and just spazzing out, basically. It comes free with my students' membership because I just want them to have access to it. I have On Guard BJJ. You can follow me on Instagram. Of course, like I said, online academy on guardbjj.com. I have the Essential Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Uh, you can follow me at the Essential Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Your book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My book, Zara Can Do Jiu-Jitsu. Zara is my daughter. So Z-A-R-A Can Do Jiu-Jitsu. This book, honestly, it's been uh, a bust in terms of finances, but that's just my ego. That's needing. not why we write these things. Come on. Exactly, man. It's that's that's me like again trying to do something for jujitsu because who knows, maybe there'll be a young family. Oh, what book should we get today? Oh, what's this one? What's jujitsu? Oh, let's let's read about it. Oh my god, this looks kind of cool. Right, right. So that that is that was the intention of the book was to introduce young families to jujitsu. And you know, you're gonna put your kid in a sport or an activity, why not teach them how to choke other kids out, right? Matt, was there anything that we didn't cover that we should have covered? Not really, man. I mean, it was a fun conversation. Great questions. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone who tuned in and supports my show, too. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Adolfo. Everyone, so thanks again. I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. You are watching or listening to Forever White Belt. Matt, it was a total honor to have you on the show. I hope we can do a part two eventually. Oh, we're doing part two. Awesome, we'll get man. real spicy in part two. <laughs> real spicy, yeah, now that I know what I'm getting into here. Oh, hell yeah. All right, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks, thanks. Matt.